March 30th, 2023, a historic day in America, a former president of the United States indicted on criminal charges. Breaking news at this hour, a grand jury here in New York City. Starting yet another round of a media frenzy around the former president. This, of course, is unprecedented. Cable news wall-to-wall coverage. A former president of the United States for the first time in history has been... Public will see here as a former president uh, is now indicted. Sure, we saw just a few minutes ago the former president making his way... 46 presidencies in our history, never seen anything like this. Hold on right there, Dwayne. We just saw Donald Trump. Uh, we're showing that to you as well, so you can see it. Depending on which TV channel you watch, what happened could either be a triumph for the rule of law or one of the darkest days in American history. With a nation as divided as it is today, it's easy to start slapping labels on everything. But with all the political drama we've been through over the past few years, I want to go beyond the standard talking points, look at the legal facts, and examine how we got here today, and what will this indictment do to the American political system. But first, did the former president commit a crime? Did he do something wrong? What was it? Explain that to us. I I don't see him ever actually going to jail. I personally don't even care. I just want a system that somehow finds a consistent accountability. Consistent accountability. Do we have that in our justice system? And if not, where does that lead us as a nation? I've been speaking to top legal minds around the country to find out. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us here today. Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. The charges based on a $130,000 hush money payment. According to bank statements from Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, during the 2016 presidential election, Cohen paid $130,000 to an adult film actress, Stormy Daniels. That was for her to stay quiet about an alleged affair that she had had with the former president just a few years earlier. The non-disclosure agreement itself is not illegal. I used to draft uh, non-disclosure agreements. They're very legal, and they were done for all kinds of matters, secrets of this or that or the other, or corporate when you bought people out. It had nothing to do with a political matter. But it's the business record aspect that the DA has a problem with. After Trump won the presidency, he wrote several checks to reimburse Cohen. The entry is supposedly false because most of the money paid to Michael Cohen was not for legal fees, it was for legal expenses to settle the Stormy Daniels case and have her sign an NDA. So arguably that is a false record on business ledgers. John O'Connor is a former assistant U.S. attorney and the former attorney for Watergate's Deep Throat. Under New York law, it is a misdemeanor to make a false financial entry on one's business records. Now, in order for that crime to be a felony and not a misdemeanor, the false entry has to be for the purpose of hiding another crime. Now that's where this indictment gets in trouble. The DA falls short of making clear what the second crime is. 
but he did hint at a federal campaign finance violation, saying in the indictment that Trump had falsified New York business records to conceal criminal conduct that hid damaging information from the voting public. But if this is about the 2016 presidential election, how could Bragg, a local prosecutor, prosecute a federal offense? First of all, the statute in New York probably means you're trying to hide a New York crime, not a crime from Nebraska, not a federal crime, not a crime against Sharia law or a Philippines crime, but a crime in New York. The crime that they are saying Trump is hiding, we think the crime is a false election expenditure. Now, that's where this case goes awry. And you know what else they say about my people? Besides the fact that New York has no jurisdiction over federal election law, it is not a crime to not put down as an election expenditure something that is not an election expenditure. Paying off your mistress is not an election expenditure, therefore not putting it down Hiding that is not hiding an election expenditure. If I think it would be a good idea for me to have a Bentley for my election campaign, even though I think it's an election expenditure, it's not. The Federal Election Commission says, no, you can't spend money on those personal things that have other uses other than really campaigning. It's really odd, and you're seeing lawyers from across the political spectrum sort of scratching their heads right now, going, really? Ugh, you indicted Donald Trump with this? Anyone who knows and understands campaign finance law knows that the idea that somehow this was an illegal or unlawful campaign contribution is flat out nuts. Uh, matter of fact, a, a federal election commissioner actually explained that there is no legal basis for saying that uh, such an arrangement, even if it was true, would violate campaign finance law. Members of uh, the Democrat Party themselves are going on national television and saying, wait a minute, wait, this doesn't rise to the occasion of a felony and this is backfiring. There's not an incredible new set of facts that we didn't know about publicly. It's really the facts of this case as they have existed for basically almost seven years. It was nothing new, that there was not a new surprising fact pattern, which means... Well, I think everyone is expecting a lot more to indict a former president, and uh, obviously it's not what uh, anybody thought was there. So if you're somebody at home who's skeptical of this case, you're saying, so they waited seven years to try it, then they're waiting about eight months to have the second hearing on it, and by the way, it's going to fall two months before the Republican primary. If you're Donald Trump, you're going to say, it's a witch hunt. It's political. It's a partisan DA. So 88% of Democrats want to indict Trump, and I understand that he stirs up animosity, but this is not the case to do it in. There's a, a, a device from last century, right? I'll use this analogy. It's called a thaumatrope, right? So imagine you have a card and there's a, uh, a bird on one side and on the other side is a cage. And then there's a stick that the card's on. If you spin the stick around, it gives the illusion that the bird is in the cage. Similarly, I think that what Alvin Bragg is doing here is he is uh, taking this you know, misdemeanor set of small crimes about bookkeeping matters. He's elevating it to the status of a felony based on the idea that there's another crime, a federal crime. Sure.
even though it wasn't actually pursued by the appropriate federal authorities. And, you know, it's actually a mystery whether that's actually the crime that he has in mind because we're not mind readers of him. Because of the political dynamics in New York City, I think more than 80% voted for President Biden. So how could President Trump really have a jury of his peers in Manhattan? It's something that we haven't seen in this country since we kicked out the British almost 250 years ago. And in fact, it was one of the bases for our Declaration of Independence. In the Declaration of Independence, we talked about how one of the crimes that, that King George had done was hauling American citizens across seas, back to Great Britain, um, to stand trial for pretend offenses. Because the British knew that if they held trial for these people, for these trumped up uh, charges in the colonies, that there'd be an acquittal. So they had to send it back to London where they knew that they would get a conviction. Sound familiar? It's almost exactly what's happening now. Whether it's President Trump or unfortunately a lot of other Americans that are caught up in political prosecutions right now, and you bring them to places like Manhattan and New York or even Washington DC, places where those people know that they will not get fair trials uh, with a jury pool there. The New York Times cited legal experts saying that New York prosecutors have never before combined the falsifying business records charge with a violation of state election law in a case involving a presidential election or any federal campaign. And it is possible that a judge could throw it out or reduce the felony charge to a misdemeanor. If this hush money case isn't so strong, why would the Manhattan District Attorney still move forward with it despite facing a potential political firestorm? Attorney and former chair of the Washington, D.C. Democratic Party, A. Scott Bolden, explains one possible line of reasoning. New York had to go first. It may not be the most powerful and, and, and greatest case in the world regarding the, all the number of alleged bad acts that Donald Trump has made, but it makes it easier for Georgia, as well as the special prosecutor in the document case, as well as the January 6th insurrection investigation by DOJ or the special prosecutor. It makes it easier for them, simply from a perception standpoint, that he's been indicted already. It's okay to indict him again and again in much stronger cases. And then the real question for the political observers and all of us is, does he stay in the race or not? Uh, he can certainly run, he can be nominated, he can even uh, win the presidency if he does and still be indicted, but can he focus on that when he's facing multiple indictments despite his MAGA supporters and him wearing it on his sleeve. His liberty is at stake. He's never been in a criminal case like this before, never been indicted before. Civil cases, regulatory cases, you can get around that with money and influence. You can't in the criminal justice system. This is gonna be the biggest challenge of his life. I believe additional indictments against President Trump, and those will be indictments just because they can. Um, and all of it will, will have a, a cumulative effect to take away time from his ability to campaign, to take away people that might consider doning, you know, as donors do, right? And this is also to drive a wedge in, in the American people and the base that, the conservative base, not the mega base, but the conservative base 
of this country to drive a wedge against Trump and keep people away from, from him. If that could happen to one faction of America, what do you think will happen should that faction end up in power once again? So I would just like for those Democrats and or people who might disagree with the president or myself or even the Republican Party today, if it could happen to us, it could happen to you. How big of a risk is that to maybe hit a dead end or for things not to work out? And what effect does it ultimately have on the perception of the public's view of our justice system being politicized? I think that um, the New York case, uh, if it does go south, or if it, you don't get a conviction uh, before a jury, or even if it gets dismissed, I don't think it will be, uh, then it's going to raise a lot of questions in the minds of, of the average voter or the average citizen. Are politics part of the criminal justice system? Uh, I certainly don't think so. Even with judges, I don't think they play politics. I've been in front of conservative as well as liberal judges and got mixed reviews or mixed decisions. Uh, so I think the criminal justice system uh, lacks politics despite the perception, but it's the best system we've got. It's the best system we have in the world because it protects the defendant. Right now, Donald Trump is innocent. No matter what we think about him, as part of the criminal justice system, as a criminal defendant, he's cloaked in his due process rights and he's still innocent. The government has the burden. He, Donald Trump, doesn't have to say a word. He doesn't have to take the stand. And if they don't reach their burden and the jury finds him not guilty, he's a free man. And that's how the system works. Our justice system lacks politics. But over the past few years, there's been a growing concern over that statement. Do we still have consistent accountability, or has our justice system become a partisan tool? The core principle of our rule of law is now in question. Fans of the Trump indictment insist that no man is above the law. No one is above the law. My reaction to the indictment is that no one is above the law. We are showing one of the fundamental tenets of a democracy, that the law applies to everyone, equally. No one is above the law, not even a former president of the United States. This indictment draws a comparison to a similar situation just a few years ago, when Mr. Trump spoke of prosecuting Hillary Clinton and James Comey. At that time, the media had a different reaction, calling it an illegal investigation and going after political rivals. Donald Trump is basically running his office like he's ahead of a banana republic. Uh, trying to put his former opponent in jail, trying to put James Comey in jail. If this happened in another country, we'd have the State Department saying it's no longer a democracy. Neither Clinton nor Comey end up being investigated by the Department of Justice when Trump was in office. And, you know, I was at the Justice Department at the relevant time. I was not involved in uh, any of the issues in terms of looking at Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, but. From everything that I could see, just having my ear to the ground inside the walls of the main justice building, the RFK building, I just don't think that there was any ever any serious effort to actually try to prosecute her. You know, it's one thing to give a fiery political speech, or oftentimes the attendees at rallies would be the ones who would do the locker up kind of thing, right? So it was more like, you know, President Trump letting his folks kind of fire themselves up at these rallies with those kinds of chants. But I, I don't actually think that he really thought seriously about it. But it seems to me like all the stops are being pulled out in an unprecedented way against President Trump. Federally, state, and local prosecutors 
I mean, they're all just crawling over him and they've been crawling over him since 2016. It's endless, included, you know, two impeachments, including an unprecedented impeachment after he left office, which I think is, you know, constitutional anathema. There's a, a massive disconnect in, in terms of the way that these Democrat prosecutors all across the board are treating President Trump versus how uh, Republican prosecutors treated Democrat politicians. Can you imagine how many false financial entries there are in New York City? And this is the one they're going after. So when they say no one is above the law, that's kind of silly. As a matter of fact, I myself thought that it was wrong to go after Hillary when she's running for president because you're taking away the candidate that more than 50% of the Democrats like. So was she above the law when James Comey decided not to charge her? Arguably not. Arguably, it was a discretionary matter of the prosecution. I was a prosecutor. You exercise your discretion not to charge crimes frequently. So this whole idea about not being above the law doesn't make any sense. Supporters of the former president have been calling the indictment a political persecution. But in terms of defining um, political persecution, when you have Democrats and Republicans so polarized, and how do you do that if you want to prevent it from happening? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and there's a number of different ways we need to look at these prosecutions to see that they're politically motivated. And the first and easiest way is if one political ideology is being treated one way in the criminal justice system, is the opposite side also being treated similarly? Or there are there people that are essentially above the law on the other side? And that's what we see right now. So for instance, um, you know, we can look at January 6th as an example. The prosecution of over a thousand Americans on January 6th. And then you would say, well, have people on the left ever been violent in protesting? Um, were they prosecuted for that? Were they left in D.C. Central for months or years? While all of this was happening, policemen were told to have a light touch. Are they being treated equally? I've stated multiple times that if laws were broken, then people that broke those laws need to be held accountable. But there shouldn't be, we're going to have one standard for January 6 people who walked into the Capitol, and we're going to have another standard for those liberal environmentalist um, activists who stormed the Department of Interior. I, sh I held up a picture in a Judiciary Committee hearing and asked uh, A.G. Garland that specific question. Here's a picture of January 6th. Here's a picture of leftist uh, environmentalists storming into the Department of Interior. Officers were injured. Officers had to go to the hospital. You've heard nothing about that on mainstream media. And I said, are you going to treat these two cases the same? He refused to answer my question. Said he hadn't even heard of or knew that the Department of Interior had been raided. Federal building. Would you call both of, both of these acts domestic terrorism? Look, I'm not going to comment about particular matters. Um, it, it's as matter we sit here today, we all know what's happening with the January 6th people. Um, but nothing has happened to any of these individuals after asking repeatedly to this DOJ. We have a two-tiered justice system, uh, and there are some people uh, who are, in fact, above the law. I've read by Hunter Biden's laptop, and I don't understand why we're prosecuting Donald Trump, but nobody's prosecuting Hunter Biden. This makes no sense to me. Hunter Biden's laptop story, perhaps another example of the media and political players getting ahead of the facts. It was first published by the New York Post shortly before the 2020 presidential election. 
The article questioned Hunter Biden's business dealings with China and Ukraine while his father was vice president. The Post claimed to have seen a laptop belonging to the younger Biden that allegedly contained evidence of corruption. It was soon dismissed as Russian misinformation. It's a story raising concerns about whether it's real or just designed to sow confusion. This looks like your classic disinformation campaign. Could actually be part of Russia's latest and very massive disinformation campaign in the U.S. presidential election. National intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. Five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. But after the election, a major twist in the media's narrative. You're confident based on your analysis, this is Hunter Biden's data, and that it's real. Yes. He was getting paid during a time Joe Biden, his father, was vice president. But now allegations that the president's son has been getting preferential treatment. And the DOJ, they've had Hunter Biden's laptop now for years, and the FBI has literally sat on that. They've done nothing with that case. So it's, it's frustrating for America, it's supposed to be the place where there is equal justice under the law, and that's not what's happening in our country right now. Other than the hush money case, there are three other criminal investigations facing the former president. Breaking news, President Trump in a phone call pushing the Georgia Secretary of State to find votes. Georgia, prosecutors are still trying to prove that Mr. Trump made a request to falsify election results. Then there is the case that resulted in the FBI Mar-a-Lago raid last summer, which has been made more complex for the federal agency because now President Biden also reportedly removed national security-related documents. As for the January 6th investigation, charges against Trump would probably require the prosecutors to prove he wanted to obstruct the presidential certification. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. The indictment is a symptom of a much greater problem. The symptoms are indictments of Trump, FBI raiding members of the intelligence community, big members, I mean, big, you know, big name people coming out and basically saying, yeah, we intentionally signed a letter that, that, you know, wasn't true. Those are more symptoms. The problem that is, uh, that America is facing, and this indictment has a big piece of this, is corruption, is deep-seated corruption. The news cycle often feels like it moves at the speed of light. But as we reflect on much of what has taken place since 2016, the groundless Russia collusion investigation, two impeachment attempts, and now high-ranking officials orchestrating a letter suggesting the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation, it raises more questions. What's happening in our beloved country? With an election on the horizon, Inflation out of control and China's constant provocation. Is this really what voters want or elected officials to focus on? Well, we're not a serious country anymore when you think about it. This is all bread and circuses for the masses. Uh, we have serious problems. Think about our foreign policy problems. Think about our military weakness. Think about the border crisis, the humanitarian crisis. If you feel very strongly about the immigrants coming to this country that should be taken care of. That's a strain on our budget. 
But we're not a serious country when all we're talking about here is indicting Trump. It's the mark of a, really, I hate to say it, but a, a dissolute nation that has lost its bearings. It's very unprincipled. I don't know how uh, these individuals feel that they're doing a great job by letting people, you know, like, like let's say a knife point robbery. He, th he thinks that's a minor offense. Um, you know, low-level burglaries, he calls them. If somebody breaks into your house, that's, is that a low-level crime? Commercial burglaries are through the roof here. Um, stores now, our, our drug chains are locking everything up constantly because of the theft. Uh, it's just unbelievable. You know, now we're trying to get back to sanity in New York City, but it's a tough, it's a tough road when you're going to have DAs like uh, Alvin Bragg kind of letting it, you know, resisting arrest, he even says, he's not going to prosecute. I, can you believe that? Now, murders so far this year are up by about 17.4% compared to the same time period last year. Right now, we may have set on a path of convicting people using an ambiguous interpretation of legal statute to achieve political goals. They have started to go down a very, very dangerous road. But how far are we from the cautionary tales history has left us to reflect upon? What will happen when we can't hold ourselves up to the standards of the rule of law? Stalin, who was one of the worst genocidal maniacs in history, up to 20 million people killed under his reign, he takes somebody who is a threat to him, and rather than necessarily just you know taking them out back and, and shooting them, they would they would invent charges against somebody, and convict him of, of that, and then you know unfortunately oftentimes followed by uh, quick sentences often of, of execution, and you see the the same thing in in Maoist China, you see, you see the the same thing in any number of of banana republics, Cuba, Central America, it's a common refrain where whatever side is in power decides that they are going to either discredit or maybe even eliminate their political opponents through law enforcement um, and through the, the judiciary. And we're in the early stages of that happening right now, but we see many, many occasions right now where federal law enforcement targeting people based on politics. It's an extremely dangerous time. Jesse, is there a specific point in our history, modern or otherwise, that you kind of feel as though we started to diverge from those ideals? Oh, it's, it's really interesting to, to talk about this, um, how we kind of began the process of losing our constitutional republic given to, our, uh, given to us by our founders. And historians can probably look at, at everything from uh, the reforms that were put in place after the, the Civil War that were that were very heavy-handed. Um, they can they can look at uh, security measures that came in place during the Cold War. They can certainly look, and, and where I would peg it in modern times is our fear of of terrorism after September 11th and the rise of of bills like the Patriot Act. Um, I remember. The first time I, I heard about the new government agency that was going to come in place after September 11th, and it was to be called the Department of Homeland Security, and I just kind of, I, I kind of 
shrugged a little bit and my hair st stood on end because, gosh, that sounds a lot like the Committee for State Security. And the Committee for State Security in, in Russian is KGB. Then you kind of look at the, the Patriot Act and you look at some of these other statutes that were passed and you go, you know, right now they're thinking about using this against our enemies overseas. We certainly do need to protect our, our citizens um, when, when called upon. There's no doubt about that. But what's to stop this from being used against Americans? And the answer, uh, we know now, the answer is nothing. The answer is, oh, we just have to trust our federal law enforcement. They've proven themselves unworthy of trust. Civil society has dramatically changed since our founders drafted the Constitution, both for the good and the bad. Many of the founders were spiritual believers who believed in unchanging moral principles as a basis for human conduct. There seems to have been a forced schism between spirituality and government. Does hope for our country ultimately lie in a return to traditional values. Are you hopeful at all, or what will it take to get the country's legal system uh, back on track? Is there hope? Well, Steve, uh, you know, it, I wish I could tell you that there's an easy fix, because a lot of these problems are, are downstream of far upstream uh, problems. You know, one problem is the, the, the culture has changed. You know, I think that if you talk to ordinary Americans in, say, uh, 1941, you know, at a time when Hollywood was very patriotic and where movies would be put out uh, teaching people about the Constitution and about not just their civic, you know, civil rights, but also their civic duties, that a lot of that has gone by the board. And we've also seen a change in the media where we see you know social media rising and people constantly yelling at each other uh, and you know a debasement of uh, the level of analysis and level of reflection how do we return to civil discourse in terms of just being able to listen to another's opinion without thinking that they're a domestic terrorist you know, I'm a lieutenant governor in a Republican state Trump won overwhelmingly we're working with the Democrat governor. Uh, and I committed when I got elected to never talk bad about him in public. We disagree behind closed doors, but when we leave out, we work for the greater good of Louisiana. And I think in the in days past, uh, Republicans, Democrats used to do that. And many of them don't even speak. Uh, our father was chief of staff to Governor Train. Uh, they'd do battle all day and go out to dinner at night with the Democrats and Republicans. There was a time in America when both parties were patriotic, both parties were anti-communist. Democrats wanted to tax a little more and spend a little more. Republicans, at least theoretically, wanted to tax less and spend yet less. But your, your, your efforts were to win a general election, not to put the opposition in jail or ruin them financially or destroy them. I was formerly a registered Democrat. So our family, my entire family, I had nine brothers and sisters, and of course my mother and father. We consider ourselves Kennedy Democrats, so JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King. When I was a kid, and I was a young man, we looked at Republicans as the party of the elites, party of wealth, 
right? The party of the haves, right? When, when we were looking at ourselves as the party of, of the workers and the, and the have-nots. But I think Kennedy uh, saw what, it, what happened, or what was happening to the Democratic Party, uh, one of them being an overreaching uh, federal government and the ideals, the true I ideals of, uh, of the Democratic Party. And because he tried to raise those ideals, he was killed for it. Okay, he was assassinated for it. Physical assassinations are much messier these days. And we have a lot of new technologies to be able to learn, you know, the forensics of something that happened, right? Where what is less messy is the assassination by narrative, okay? I'm a product of one of those. I've been, I've been assassinated by narrative, yet I'm still standing because I, I have a, a, a much deeper understanding of what it is that we're facing than, the, than, than you know, 95% of, of just regular people. The tailspin is gonna drive us right into the ground and that's gonna be the end of America and that will be America's demise. The 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, once quipped, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, as the government grows and becomes more and more omnipresent, it is equally important that our agencies remain neutral and fair-minded, which seems a tall order in a nation as divided as we appear to be. And I think that for every American, regardless of what political side of the aisle you're on, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, undecided, independent, it should terrify you because if our political system, if our judicial system, if our justice system is going to be used to go after individuals because they don't share your political beliefs, your philosophy, your philosophy about the world, our, our country's in danger. I do believe that uh, this country is at a dangerous stage of introspection right now. Uh, I think that uh, the collapse of America potentially will come from within, not from outside America. And the only way to assure that that internal collapse does not occur, like the great uh, orator Cicero predicted millennia ago, is to unite the country, to assure that different ideologies are not used by certain sitting administrations to target, to really show what binds us more than divides us. Throughout history, there's been certain watershed moments. Um, I think the power that we gave government after September 11th is one of those watershed movements that's being used against us, but now we're at another one because we are going to now decide as a country, as a free people, whether we are going to plant the American flag and say no, no more. We are not going to give federal law enforcement and uh, other local law enforcement, local prosecutors, the power to go after us for uh, trumped up political charges, that what the founders called pretend defenses anymore. We need other people that are lifelong uh, blue dog, dyed in the wool, you know, union Democrats that love this country, 
uh, that love America and, and they, they might, you know, differ from us on a few policy positions here and there. They love this country and what it stands for, and they abhor the idea of political prosecutions. We need those people to stand with us. And we can have plenty of differences down the road after we fight this giant, this biggest threat that America has confronted in two and a half centuries. We can go back to our, to our more petty disagreements after that. But right now, all freedom-loving Americans must stand together. Otherwise, in the words of Benjamin Franklin, we shall surely hang separately. Our founding fathers believed that our constitution was made for only a moral people and it is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Morality and virtue are necessary for a society to be free. Without virtue, there can be no liberty. When morality is in decline, even the most perfect system can be abused. How can we make sure our system, the one that we take great pride in, continues to work? As we look at the state of our nation and way of life today, it's clear that something has to change. Perhaps what we need is a return to the moral values and principles upon which it was founded. This means moving away from corruption and returning to traditional values that have served us well throughout our history. Only by embracing these values can we hope to move forward and secure the future of our great nation?